Happy 2019 from Your Money, Your Wealth. Today on the podcast, as always, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA, are resolving to answer your money questions. Do you owe taxes on a property that's gifted to you? Why would you use a financial advisor? And what are the small business owner limits on Roth and 401k contributions? So how about you? Have you made any New Year's resolutions? Do you actually want to keep them this time? I'm producer Andy Last, and before we get to your emails, Big Al and I are talking to Marcus Garrett. He's the co-host of the Paychecks and Balances podcast, and he's also the author of Debt Free or Die Trying, How I Buried Myself in Over $30,000 in Debt and Dug My Way Out by Age 30. Marcus may have an idea or two based on personal experience on how we can make our New Year's resolutions stick, whether they involve getting out of debt or starting a passive income stream. Marcus, how you doing? Hey, hello. Thank you for having me. Hey, you know what? First of all, and I know we got a lot to talk with you about, but you wrote this book called Debt Free or Die Trying. So I got to ask you about what's the story and what's kind of some of the messages in the book? Well, I'm trying not to get sued here, so I'll say the, mo- the, <laughs> yeah, the motivation. what you can tell us, right? Uh, yeah, the motivation, I won't say it was the actual source, but uh, it's actually Mr. Rapper 50 Cent, uh, Curtis Jackson, I believe is his legal name, okay. who had uh, Get Rich or Die Trying, and I was ah. like, you know what, that's that's really catchy. Yeah, like right. I said, I don't, I don't want him to reach out and sue me, so he was just <laughs> he motivated me strongly to come up with Debt Free or Die Trying, because I believe that's the other side of the coin, if yes. you will. Yeah. And more so the story that I could relate to, because I was not not rich then. I am presently not rich now, but I am debt free. And so the quick version of it is the tagline is how I buried myself in $30,000 in debt and dug my way out by age 30. Um, I'm six years senior to that now, so I'm 36. But the quick version is I spent $26,000 in one weekend coming out of college. Oh, no. Marcus. How'd that happen? (laughs) It must have been quite a weekend. It was actually, and people ask me this, like, do you regret it? Is it like the worst experience ever? And I'm like, actually, it's the complete opposite. It was, it was the best great. experience ever. <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone has ever tried to spend $10,000 in one weekend. And yeah. That's like a piece of it. So the, the, the short version of it yeah. isn't as detailed as you'd like to go. And the story's out there on the internet for yeah. anybody who wants to read it. Just Google it because I think Got I'm it. the... I'm, I'm not sure if it's a record, but I think I'm the only one that spent that amount of money in one weekend. My so, goodness. Right. So anyway, so, so, so very you, easy you got in debt. And, 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 and I graduated school with about yeah. $9,000 in credit card debt. Okay. And I had signed up for, of course, the T-shirt and the yo-yo like several other um, senior millennials like myself when you go into right. the mall the mall area of the campus and they had the t-shirt and the swag out and they're like, Hey, just sign your life away here and you get this t-shirt. I'm like, cool. I didn't really know what a credit card was. (laughs) I clearly maxed out three. Got it. (laughs) And I still had a pretty good credit score somehow. And they sent me a debt consolidation offer in the mail. So I I called that the graduation and credit card debt. And I didn't really know what it was. Still didn't really uh, understand what debt consolidation was. I think I applied one that looked the most friendly and they mailed me a 22-year-old who had already spent $9,000 despite never making more than $19,000 in my entire <laughs> yeah. life. Yeah, oh my like, gosh. I'd seen Blink at the time. They sent me a $10,000 check. Right, right. In my head, I thought they would pay off all the credit cards on my behalf. Sure. And so oh, wow. Oh, no. And you spent that too. that I had at the time, <laughs> who was also a financial enabler, was like, yeah. make it rain. And <laughs> right, so right. we went out with that uh, quote-unquote blank check. I spent... Like 7000 of it, if you will. I couldn't even spend it all. That's what I'm right. saying. That's very difficult to spend $10,000. But I did manage to spend the majority of it. I paid off one of the three credit cards, and then I bought a $13,000 used car 
no down payment. I was like, you know what? I'm, I got $10,000. People with $10,000 <laughs> yeah, right. to go get. That's not what I do. So I bought a got used it. car with rims because I have my taste. Yeah. <laughs> so keeping track at home, that brings me up to $23,000. And yeah, then yeah. I bought, and people don't believe this, a flat screen 32-inch TV, and it was $3,000 at the time. Oh, They're boy. Like, now and so that gets us up to the twenty six thousand dollars 72 so, hours and then i spent the next seven years of my life paying that off paying that off oh my goodness seven so, years to pay off so, one weekend so marcus a lot of our listeners are retirees but they have a lot of kids and our grandkids that are in this kind of situation and what would you tell them to get out of debt well, I would say number one is I still think it's a plan. And I think for those people, if you're going to have a conversation with your grandchildren, is not to lecture, um, <laughs> yeah, which might, right. yeah. <laughs> might be a little bit difficult, but more, come more from a, a relatable place. So that's why I tell that story. It's actually a story I used to be very ashamed of. And some advice that I got was actually to take ownership of it because it's both a unique story and a relatable story. Mm-hmm. So right, right. for those people who want to relate to their grandchildren, I would you know start with, you know, here's a time or a lesson I learned or experience in which you can relate to so it doesn't come across as a lecture. But I still think that all folks can relate to the plan is the starting point. I kind of break it down. I use the acronym now, so it's debt. So D would be define the plan, define the problem, really. So I like to go to um, annualcreditreport.com. There's several different apps and websites, of course, that people can use now. But just most people don't even know how much debt they have. I did not. I just spent uh, and then because I graduated college, like all college students, I thought six figures would come rolling in because yeah. that's what mm-hmm. you go to school for, sure, obviously. Sure. And, you're, and you were a business major, so you figure you're easy street, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and yeah, ease, uh, establish a plan. So whether that's, I think the two most popular is uh, the debt snowball, where you arrange your debts by the, and made um, popular by Dave Ramsey, of course. Sure. You arrange all your debts by the lowest amount and then pay it off. And then the debt avalanche is you arrange all your debts by the highest percentage and pay it off. Right. The reason he and I would also recommend the debt snowball is because it tends to be more psychologically beneficial. Yeah. So you see that debt go down yeah. immediately. Um, and a lot of people need that that moral victory as well, especially in the beginning yeah. to stick to it. I think you're right because you see one debt going away and you go, okay, I can do this, right? right. And then you start to get more confidence. Yep. Yeah, yeah I, call, I call it not underestimating the power of zero. Um, right. seeing yeah. A, yeah. yeah, seeing a debt at zero is there's just an, an emotional, intangible win that comes from that. Right. Yep. So congratulations. So you got out of debt and you decided, you know, I, I think I want to share this message to others. And, and how's the right. book in, been going? Uh, I, I self-published the book, and so because of the way that Amazon is set up, and I've actually uh, self-published a separate one um, to how to build a, a plan that you'll actually stick to as an ebook. I, I have no idea how many that I've sold because <laughs> Amazon's got all these weird algorithms got that it. I don't even try to understand. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, every yeah. month or so, I get a royalty check, so I'm happy. Okay, <laughs> excellent, good for you. I want I want to hear the rest of the acronym though. What are the B and the T in debt? So the B would be build a budget. Um, I, I now currently use an 80-20, but I actually recommend people with, when they're starting out to use a 50-30-20. So 50 for needs, 30 for wants, and 20% is always allocated to something responsible, whether that's debt management, saving for retirement, or putting uh, in building your emergency fund. Yeah. And then T like is that. just trust the process or time will pass on its own, uh, right. whichever is more applicable. Nice. Excellent. That, that's great. If you'd like to read more about how Marcus Garrett triumphantly dug his way out of debt, visit the 
show notes for today's episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to find the link to his book, Debt Free or Die Trying, as well as the link to Paychecks and Balances, the fun formative millennial podcast about work and money that Marcus co-hosts with Rich Jones. And while you will find transcripts of every one of the last 201 episodes of this podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, the transcript of this interview will be in the show notes by the end of the week. Because let's face it, working overtime heading into the holiday weekend was not one of my New Year's resolutions. Speaking of which... We're at the time of the year where people are making New Year's resolutions. So tell us how you think about that process. Something I started in roughly 2016, I I try to shy away from it, but it actually is a vision board. It's technically a whiteboard. And so I only shy away from it because I think vision board is like really corny. reminds me of like hashtag the secret. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I think of when I hear vision board. (laughs) But with that being said, uh, I looked it up uh, for the show. So 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by February. A lot of people don't even remember their previous year's New Year's resolution. So I like to break it down into micro goals. So what I did in 2016 is I broke it down by quarter because I'm a crazy person. I'm also an auditor. So it's very easy for me to fall into this. But what does that plan look like from month to month. You establish this huge, usually lofty, usually impossible or improbable personal goal, and then it fails. And that's because you didn't really break down what those action items look like. So we like to call them the big ask or actionable tips on the show. What are you actually going to do from day to day or week to week? One of the most useful tools, which is kind of funny to people, is, you know, they ask me which apps and, you know, which investment advice and what sites that I go to. The most useful tool I have is actually this little whiteboard calendar that I use. I got from like Walmart from like $9.99. I wipe it off every month and I just write down from January 1st to January 30 what bills I have to pay what action items I need to take to be successful this month. And it's the most useful tool that I have. It's actually the cheapest one I have next to free. And it still keeps me motivated from year to year. And what I've seen from 16 to now going into 19 is 16 was this really crowded, overwhelming board. 19 is very simple. And I've been able to see the progress I've made, the things that I've been able to to take off and keep track of. And I take either a picture or a snapshot and it allows Uh me to... Yeah, see the progress. Yeah, that's I was, was going to ask yeah. you, if you're wiping it off at the end of every month, how are you <laughs> able to keep track? But yes, taking pictures of the whole thing, so you've got the entire process. Well, that's an excellent question because I do take a picture each month, and I can even see simple changes. Like, there's a company who's not to be named because, once again, I'm, you know, I don't want to be fired. <laughs> Viral <laughs> on Friday, fired on Monday, as we say on the show. Right, right, sure, right. <laughs> but, yeah, they raised my bill at $6 every single time. It's an insurance company. I'll just leave it at that. Right, okay. <laughs> and most people are like, how do you even notice $6 ago? I was like, because I track it every month. Right, <laughs> so yep. right, right. I'm angry about it every six months because that's 10 weeks. Yeah. They tend to be allocated. <laughs> but, but that's what I'm talking about. You need to have this practical visual plan in front of you. And then, of course, it's futile because I get mad every six months. I try to find a cheaper plan. They still somehow are the cheapest. That's probably why they raise mm-hmm. it $6. Yeah, right, right, But right. I know that. And and most people don't even know kind of where their money's going. They wonder where their money went. And this is what, one way that I was able to break out of that cycle. So just by writing down the goals and starting to break them into sub-goals. That you, makes it you, so tangible. You, you start to get some clarity in life. Yeah. Yeah, and I think especially in this day and age, people think it needs to be complicated, but I still believe in the the kiss, the keep it simple, and then there's another right. S if you can figure out what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've heard, uh, I've heard what still, it is. Yeah, yeah it, it still seems to be the, the most actionable for me is pen, paper, what do I plan to do either this week, this month, or this year, broken down into actionable tips that I can actually implement. 
so I do use my iPhone. Don't get me wrong. I do have a smartphone and I have a list in there. But to give you an idea of how crazy I am, I have 23 ongoing actionable lists at any given time. Oh, my. Most, wow. Yeah. Okay. The most important one to me is my action items list. And the way I've broken that down is short term. So for me, that's by this weekend, here's what I want to do. So it's usually week to week. Got it. And then I have a long term, if you will, and that's over 90 days. And then I just have a queue. Because you go throughout the year and you have this great idea that I used to call it conflicting goals. So I have complementary goals. So if I do one, that helps two, which builds on three, which makes four easy. Then I have conflicting goals like, you know, I want to do something that is completely off the beaten path that has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. I might need to put that in the queue, if you will, for right now, because that's going to take 80 percent of my time, even though it might have 100 percent benefit. Right. But if I these other complementary goals, they build off of one another. Well, Marcus, uh, this is really organized. <laughs> well, he's an auditor. I yeah, mean, right. He has to be organized, right? <laughs> So let me ask you, are you, I assume these are for all areas of your life, like, uh, you know, family, finances, health. I mean, is it kind of everything or are you focused on finance? The action items list is everything. The other 22, if you will, <laughs> they, <laughs> they run the gamut. You know. Some of them are just travel lists. Like if I visit yeah. a certain city, I'll put a travel list together. Uh, another one is a bucket list. I have a running bucket list that I'm always building on. And I also, the reason I like to keep all of these different lists, to your comment, Andy, is... I didn't realize these things were crazy. I thought everybody did this. And then I, I, I'm only realizing recently, I was like, hey, I might have like some kind of virtual assistant entrepreneur gig here because I'm right. like extremely organized by accident, by right. being insane. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's another passive income stream that I'll be looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Oh, that's perfect. Well, so speaking of passive income, because I think all of us would like to figure out how to make a little bit more money. And I know that's something that you kind of focus on. So speak to us about that. In preparing for this, I actually looked on uh, MarketWatch. So MarketWatch is a, a site that I like to follow. It's a personal finance site as well. And they we did an article. Yeah, yeah, we did. Too. Okay. Yeah. So they did a piece called How to Make $2,000 in Passive Income. And what I think was interesting about this and kind of all of these reads is there was really nothing new under the sun. Not to say that it wasn't a – and I like to read this information just to see what other folks are doing. Sure. But I kind of broke it down into, of course, I like lists, like practical and unpractical, if you will. So the practical ones are pretty traditional, self-published books. A few of the other ones were real estate or stock market investing. I just feel like that's something that anyone with some level of expertise can pick up and technically start tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And the reason is most people, especially now as I move more into uh, mentorship and coaching. So some advice I got when I was younger and I, I shared on one of our shows is use your 20s to learn, your 30s to apply, your 40s to teach and mentor. So slightly ahead of the curve. Yep. But, you know, I'm, right. Right. I'm getting <laughs> slowly but surely. People underestimate the skills that they bring to the table. So they think the only money that they can make is a nine to five because someone has already determined that they're uh, capable of this paycheck, if you will. What I was like, that doesn't make any sense. This job has already determined that they're going to pay you X amount of hours to bring whatever expertise you do to the job. So how do you then turn that into a revenue stream or a passive income stream? Or how do you help or lead others? And there's typically revenue tied behind that, that people, you're just kind of thinking of trading time for money because that's all they've ever done. That's typically what school teaches you to do. And so the other ones that were on here, for example, that I kind of saw as not practical were maybe a little bit different for your audience, given where you're located, but apps, right. software, websites, like that's something I'm never going to do. I have really no desire to it. Now, this is where it goes back to those complimentary goals. If I make enough income, and I have a great idea. I will pay somebody, somebody to design yeah, an app. Somebody, yeah, there you go. Yes. Software. 
website, but it would take me so many more years and, uh, like I said, conflicting goal to learn that myself. I'd rather look at this self-published, which I love writing and reading already. It's a skill I already bring to the table. It's something I do for a living. I technically already know how much I can charge an hour because my job is paying me that. Now I can see what the market supports and then go out there and provide that expertise. Like I was talking about earlier, apparently being crazy and making 23 list is a skill set. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew, right? (laughs) It's a skill set that maybe I should be getting paid for in addition. So it's something I look forward to. Uh, The other one was like renting cars. I'm like, look, I like my car. Uh, that was actually a quote unquote present to myself that I now hate every month is because I went five years without a car payment. So, Got of course, yeah. I was debt free. And I was like, now, you know, I, I want to suffer through more car payments. <laughs> <laughs> so by car. renting cars, you're talking about like doing the Uber or Lyft type thing? I think this one was actually a, a rental car service. But, yes, that would be a, a ride share yeah. service. Yep. We, we did that. Uh, we went to Chile this last year, and uh, my wife's cousin, one of his friends, rented her car to us for the week we were there because there's oh, no there car go. rental agencies. There you go. It is interesting. My, my son, he makes about almost $600 a month on the side teaching guitar lessons. And almost anything is possible. You just have to be creative. It comes down to what your actual skill set is, like Marcus said, talking about his organizational abilities. (laughs) Right, 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 right. So Marcus, um, now are you going to be writing some more books or what's in the queue or what's on your list for the future? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, that is on the queue. And I'm hoping to write a third book. And this one I'm hoping to go through a publisher for. So I'll be reaching out to my Hint network out there to see if I can find... Oh, sign uh, us up, friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talk about uh, networking and mentoring and, and really expanding, finding a career coach, a sponsor, which uh, can help you. You don't know which doors uh, behind that opportunity instead of waiting for opportunity to knock. Sometimes you don't know which doors to open. And so expanding your network to find those. So I'll be looking to partner with someone who can help me write that third book. And the third one is basically going to be a culmination of everything I've learned, tying in the career as well. And it very well may be named uh, Paychecks and Balances. Uh, of course, that'll be up to whomever that uh, future book deal right, right. <laughs> is. Right. So tell us about the podcast. What have you got coming up on Paychecks and Balances with uh, Marcus Garrett and Rich Jones? So Rich has actually taken over the podcast because, you know, looking at the subject matter expertise, that's Rich's expertise. So we split the house. So Paychecks and Balances, we kind of started off with helping working professionals raise their paychecks and lower their balances, hence the title. Tagline being, we help working professionals make money, save money and get out of debt. Our first episode, uh, which is actually very popular still, um, and I don't even know why, because it was extremely negative. It was, uh, <laughs> like we came out the gates firing, if you yeah, will. So it's right. called the Paycheck Plateau. And we talked about stats from that episode was at age 45 and 38 for women, the bottom 90 percent of lifetime earners will see their earnings decline or become fixated. So you may see a raise, but it won't be significant enough uh, to overcome inflation. I was like, nobody's going to return to this. (laughs) (laughs) What were we thinking? I was like, you know, that why do we start there? And it turned out, like I said, to still be one of our most popular. You know what? I I think you fired up the millennials thinking I'm not going to be that 45 year old. I'm going to be part of the 10 percent. Well, yeah, and I think one of the uh, compliments that we continue to get in the reviews is that it's relatable and they're talking about something, they being us, talking about something that we want to do differently. And they're already seeing it. Um, the oldest millennials, which that's why these articles are a little bit annoying, are 37. So, like, you see right. these articles like millennials and they're, like, eating pizza on their couch. Yeah. I love pizza with the rest of them. But I'm like, <laughs> I haven't been in a dorm room in, like, 15 years. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I can't really wholly relate to this article anymore. And, and they're shifting now. Now they're making fun of Gen Z or whatever yeah. comes after. Yeah. Oh, you, you refer to yourself as a senior millennial, right? Yeah. 
yeah, I'm on the cusp because I, <laughs> I I'm 36 going yeah, on. He's you know, practically 66. an Xer with me. <laughs> That's, yeah, very close, very close to that border. Well, Marcus, any other final uh, thoughts or or words of wisdom for our, our listeners? I would just say that I do still strongly believe that with a plan, anything is possible. That's something that we'll be looking forward to and exploring in 2019. And then, like I said, as we split the house, look for us at Paychecks and Balances on all the social medias. And we'll have the blog. I'll be expanding that and I'll be taking over that side of the house. And of course, the podcast will still be out there for the listening audience. Fantastic. Fantastic. Marcus Garrett, uh, host of Paychecks and Balances, author of Debt Free or Die Trying. Marcus, uh, we had a great time with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up on Your Money, Your Wealth, Devin Carroll of the Big Picture Retirement Podcast and Social Security Intelligence blog will tell us how sex can save Social Security. We'll also talk to Chris Hogan, host of The Chris Hogan Show and author of the upcoming book, Everyday Millionaires. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast for free on demand at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And if you aren't sure how to subscribe, I've made a video that'll walk you through it. You'll find that at yourmoneyyourwealth.com as well. Now it's time to get to that email inbox. Have you got a money question? Send it to info at purefinancial.com. Hillary from Laguna Niguel, California. Yeah. She's got a question for you, Big Al. Okay. Do I owe taxes on a property that was gifted to me when I sell the home? So my mom gifted me her house last year. If I don't rent it and I'm thinking about selling it, what percentage of taxes should I expect to pay? I think she bought the home for about four hundred fifty thousand or five hundred grand. It's worth probably double now. I don't work, but we filed jointly with my husband. My income is roughly fifty-five thousand dollars. Do I owe taxes on the property if I sell the home? What say you, uh, Hillary? Yes, you do. You do owe tax. You do owe taxes on that. And let's say let's say it's worth five hundred thousand. I mean, it's worth a million, and the cost basis is five hundred thousand. Okay, because that's what she bought the home for. So you got a $500,000 gain, fully taxable when you sell it. You got federal taxes, you have state taxes. You're in California, so that has a pretty high tax rate. So I would look at it this way. Given your income, a lot of the uh, capital gain will be taxed at 15%, but some at 20. So let's round that to 16, 17%, just for a number, okay? Then you got state taxes, 9.3. So let's round that to 10%. It could even be a little bit higher. Right, so now we're 17 and 10 is is 27 percent. Then you'll have the uh, Medicare surtax on any uh, income that's over 250,000. That's 3.8 percent. Happy holidays, Hillary. Yeah, yeah. So now we're over 30 percent. So to be safe, I would I would say a third of your profits would be what you'd pay in California and, and feds and tax. So so a third of 500,000 is what about 167,000. Call it 170,000, something like that. 170 grand in tax. <clears throat> well, good thing is, is you got a million dollar asset. Uh, yeah, bad ben, news is, you got to pay a couple hundred grand in tax. So you yeah. still net eight something. Now, now I don't know your situation, but a lot of for other people's benefit uh, is if you've got a parent that's 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 older, and they're deciding whether to gift you a property before they pass away or after. If you gift a property while you're still living. You you get the same tax basis as the person that gave it to you. In this case, five hundred thousand. So the gift or in the giftee. So the gift. If I'm giving you a gift, Al, yeah. 
you carry my bases, whatever I purchase. Whatever you it for. paid for it, and then when I sell it, I got to pay the tax. Right now, if I wait till you die and you receive it, and I receive it as part of your estate, I get a step up in basis for a, now it's a million bucks in this example, and then when I sell it, I pay no taxes. That's a real key point. If you have aging parents, right. is how what should we do with the properties? And the answer is wait till they pass away because there's step up in basis. Uh, a lot of times, I think. They don't understand the estate tax. Right. And they're like, well, here, let me get this money out of my estate. So I don't have to pay estate so tax. So I don't have to pay estate tax. Correct. Well, you know, the, the estate tax ex- exemption or exclusion, depending on which way you look at it, is right. pretty high. Yeah, it's, it's over $11 million per person, 11.2 it, or something like and that. And if your folks, if both folks were alive, you know, you're looking at $22 million bucks. Yeah. In other words, that would pass to the next generation estate tax-free and... Capital gains tax-free. And you get the, the beneficiaries get the step up in basis. So they don't pay capital gains when the property or stocks or whatever is sold. Yeah. I remember my uncle um, and aunt were giving money to my cousin. And we were sitting around Thanksgiving. This is a few years ago. My uncle was dying of um, lung cancer. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? He's like, well, I don't want the government to get it. Yeah. And I was like, well, you don't. You it doesn't only, work that it's, way. it's only a few hundred thousand bucks. Yeah. Keep it in your estate. And that point, the exemption is probably five million or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, there's probably confusion here. Let me, well, this will be easier. You know, right. I'd much rather give it to you while I'm alive so we you, can do you the You hear deed that because I, I don't want to make it too complicated yes. for the kids. So I'm just going to give it to them now. Now, right. It's so much easier after the passing. Yeah, the, um, the taxation is way better. And uh, if you have, and don't do joint too. We see this too. Yeah. Is that, all right, well, here, you can have it when I die, but let me just put you on title right now. So right. we're joint. Um, with rights to survivors. So mom and, and daughter, in this case, with Hillary, let's say if they were joint and then mom dies, well, yeah, it avoids, let's say, probate, and it does all of that, but it, it also loses some of the tax benefit if it's joint because yeah. you only get a half of step Correct. up. Correct. If it's joint, that's right. In other words, half of the property gets stepped up to fair market value. The other half is in your name. It's the original basis. And, that's, uh, and, and in California, which we're in, a community property state, uh, actually, in, in, interestingly enough, even if husband passes away and wife survives or vice versa, the survivor gets a full step up in basis, but you have to have it titled as community property or in your trust. So uh, you got to look at titling. You um, There's just a small little checklist that, that you need yeah. to just check some items off. It's not as complicated as you might think, but I think people put themselves in a deeper hole or pay more unnecessary tax because they think they're doing something that's maybe easier or yeah. smoother transaction. Yeah, so in this case, let's just say if, if Hillary's uh, mother is older and not going to live that much longer, then that was a $170,000 mistake. mistake. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Brian from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, why should I pay someone 1% of my gross portfolio to do something I could easily do using a few simple tools? Oh, Brian. Okay. Well, I don't know. Why don't you do it yourself? Yeah, wait. That's fine by us. But let's see. Let's go on. All right, uh, Brian. He's fifty-nine years old, and he plans to retire in thirteen months at the age of sixty. Congratulations! I have always used a financial advisor. The people I've used have spread my money around. So if the market goes up, I go up just enough to make it look like I'm doing okay. And it. Um, and if it goes down, it doesn't go down as much as the market does. My risk tolerance has always been moderate to aggressive. 
Now that retirement is setting in, I'm looking a little harder at what they have done in the past. It seems that I could just as easily have taken my asset allocation wheel and picked funds, bonds, stocks just like them and done just as well or better. Why should I pay someone 1% of my gross portfolio to do something that I could easily do using a few simple tools? Yeah, good good question. Great and, question. And, and I will say there are much better tools out now than there were a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. There's asset allocation tools that you put in certain variables and it will kind of spit out what your allocation should be. So I do concur there are decent tools what we find, though, happens um, many in many cases is when a person manages their own money, they get emotional and they tend to buy when things are uh, doing well. They chase returns. When the market's high, they look at last year, let's do that because it went up, and they tend to sell when markets correct or crash because they're fearful. And that's a recipe for not doing so well because you tend to buy high and sell low. But Brian's going to say, I don't do that, and that's fine. Yeah, and, and maybe you don't. And so, I mean, here's, here's my answer to Brian, is that if he's got the knowledge and the time and the passion uh, to take a look at this, to do it appropriately, and to manage it effectively, then by all means, save yourself the money. But there's other things that you should look at besides in a simple asset allocation. If someone is charging you 1% to do an asset allocation, then yeah, I don't think that's worth 1%. It's probably I, worth probably 25 basis points. I agree with that. And so you, what, what, you, you, you have to receive value for anything that you're purchasing. If you don't find value, then don't buy it. Yeah, so if you go to a financial planner that's doing cash flow planning, that's helping with you with your wills and estates, that's doing tax planning, then maybe there's enough value to justify that fee. But you're right, Joe. If it's a simple asset allocation, uh, it, it's, that probably is a little bit high. So, um, yeah. But, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? Of course. Yeah, because you, you, you always assume that you could have done as well or better. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like... Well, and we know with the, the behavior gap, Carl Richards, he, he, he kind of looks at this and, and, and he draws, draws little drawings that shows that people tend to buy when the market's high because of greed, and they tend to sell when the market's low because of fear. And then Dalbar, a company in uh, back east, looks at what's the, what's the actual investment return versus the actual investor return. And the investor return is you and me trying to pick the investments generally is a fair amount lower because emotions are getting in the way. So I have a personal trainer. Yeah. And I've been working out with him for the last, I don't know, couple of years, three, yeah. four years, something yeah, like that. Yeah, and, and you look great, by the way. Hey, thanks. Andy, you like Fat Joe? <laughs> She's like, oh, my God, you were so fat. <laughs> he showed me video from 2012. Yes, and I, yeah, yeah. And then I could go back and say, you know what? It wasn't worth it. I, I could have done that I could, myself. You know, I could, you know. Right. But no, some people need some sort of coaching, yeah. accountability, sure, or different programs so you're not bored. Right. You know, if I sit there and just lift the same weights, you know, I'd be like, this is... Yeah, this, I don't, I don't, don't want to do it. I don't yeah. want to do it. Right. right? So if someone's there to kind of mix it up, you know, I'm just looking yeah. at that. I also have a golf coach. Right. Right. And well, I, I hear you need that. I definitely need all of the above. Well, I... Have, I'm not good at certain things, and I find value in hiring someone to help me sure. to become better. Yeah, and so but, that... But that's a personal choice, right? Like, and Right now, my laundry, my... You're hiring somebody for laundry? Well, no. Like, my dryer. 
It doesn't dry clothes, and it's a brand new dryer, so I think it's clogged up. So I don't know how to do that, so now I'm going to have to hire someone to do that. Right. But after he gets done and he goes, here, here's the stupid lint. You take that stuff out. Here, I want my 500 bucks. What am I going to say? Damn, I, oh, I could have done, done that. That 500 bucks I could have saved. But Guess what? When it happens again, I'm calling him. <laughs> I ain't going to do that. You'll forget. <laughs> anyway, hopefully that helps, Brian. Another thing a financial advisor can help you with is determining whether or not you're ready and able to retire. This week on the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show, it's the 365-day countdown to retirement. Watch online at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click special offer while you're there to download Big L's Quick Retirement Calculation Guide for free. Now we've got one more email question to answer. All righty. We got one from Anita from Providence, Rhode Island. I don't know why I said that with an accent. But. Yeah, it <laughs> makes me want to listen now. As a small business owner, is there an income limit for being able to contribute to both my Roth IRA and my independent 401k as long as I don't exceed the 55000 cap for the year? Can I contribute to my independent? So I'm guessing what she means by independent is a solo 401k. Yeah, that's my guess too. In other words, she has no employees. It's just an individual 401k. Am I Roth IRA during a given year? My gross revenue as a small business is approximately $180,000 with business expenses averaging around fifty-five. dollars My spouse has a W-2 job that brings in $55,000 gross. I understand and can compute my estimate business tax and make quarterly payments. I can compute my allowable contribution based on net income for a given year. Is there any income limit for being able to contribute to both my Roth IRA, $5,500, and my solo 401k? Total contributions currently over 40, as long as I don't exceed the $55,000 cap for the year. My financial advisor is under the impression that I make too much. He recommended I hire a tax professional. I have read all the IRS documents and can find no rule that indicates I cannot take advantage of maximizing out my Roth IRA every year and contribute to a sizable amount of my independent 401k. Anita. All right. Well, you called the right place. Yes. Fire your financial advisor. That's the first thing. So let's, uh, let's break this down, right? Roth IRA contributions and 401k contributions are two totally separate things. Yep, and different rules. Different rules. Section 401k is under a totally different section of the IRS code. Right. You can contribute. The maximum to a defined contribution plan is 55, 56. It's, it's, well, it's 55,000 in 2018. 56,000 in, in 2019. Yeah, 2019. So 56000 is the maximum. No, I know a lot of you are listening and saying, Joe, I don't know. I don't think that's right because I can only put in 18500 on my 401k plan. That is true. But she has a solo 401k plan, and she can also do a profit-sharing plan. Right. And so she says she's got gross income of 180 and expenses of 55000 So that means her profit's 125000 Yep. And so roughly... About 20% of that? Yeah, 20% of that's going to be a little bit less. Twenty-five. We'll call it 23000 is probably her employer or, or profit sharing or match. So 23000 plus the eighteen point five for 2018. So that would be 41000 So you don't make it. You can't make it to the 55000 because you don't make enough. So so in the sense of a 401k, it's you have to make enough to be able to max it out. 
right? In the case of a Roth contribution, it's the opposite rules. If you make too much, you can't do any. So, yes, you can still contribute the $41,000 into the solo 401k, and you can contribute to a Roth IRA as long as you qualify for a Roth IRA contribution. And how you qualify for a Roth IRA contribution, there's two basic rules. One is that you have to have earned income. Uh, check the box, Anita, you got earned income. Second is that you can't have too much earned income. Correct. And you are married, and so that threshold is 189000 to 199000 Right. And if your net income is one hundred twenty-five, and your husband makes fifty-five, that's 180000 180000 is below one eighty-nine, so you can do the whole $5,500. So you can contribute $5,500 into your Roth IRA. Your husband can also contribute $5,500 into his Roth IRA. That's right. And if your husband is working and has a 401k, he could do 18500 into his 401k. So I wish you would have called us earlier because that would have saved you a lot of time looking at IRS docs. <laughs> well, it, maybe it's, that's not all that bad. You learn a lot of stuff when you read the IRS documents. Oh, my God. Learn not to... Not to, not to, not to read, it again. read it again. It's like, just ask Al. He right. probably knows. <laughs> so, but th- we get th- this question is common, and I'm glad, Anita, that you, that you wrote into us. Is that a, a lot of times it's like, well, no, I have a 401k. I can't contribute to an IRA. Right. Well, yes, you can. You can contribute to a 401k and you can contribute to an IRA. The only confusion is that if I want to do $5,500 to an IRA and $5,500 to a Roth IRA, that is where it gets money. You cannot do that. Correct. The IRAs is the limit of $5,500. So you can split the $5,500 half Roth, half traditional. Yes, you could. Or well, in any combination there. Uh, but Section 401k and, and IRAs are two totally separate animals. Now, if your income, let's say you have a better year business-wise and your income is higher and you're over 199000 that's the end of the phase-out period where you cannot do a Roth contribution, there's something called a backdoor Roth, which you may qualify for. So that, that simply means if you do not have another IRA, then all you simply do is make a non-deductible IRA, traditional after tax IRA, contribution. after tax, right? And then you turn right around and convert that to a Roth. And because you didn't get a tax benefit, when you do the Roth conversion, there's no tax to pay. There's tax basis in it because you, it's after tax, $5,500, there's no deduction. Yeah, because you take it out of your, your savings or checking account. Right. You've already paid taxes on it. So you, you do this non-deductible IRA contribution, and then you convert that. Now, if you already have an IRA, this gets much more problematic because now there's this thing called the pro rata rule and, and aggregation right. and all this stuff. And yeah, it, you got to be a lot more careful. But if you don't have an IRA, and a, four, a 401k doesn't count as an IRA, it's a completely different animal, as you just said, different code section. So let me explain the pro rata and aggregation rules real quickly because it's fairly easy, um, but you just have to be a little bit good at math. So Alan's got a calculator, but I'll do the math somewhat easy. Yeah. So let's say that someone has $95,000 in IRAs, okay. and they put $5,000 into a non-deductible IRA. Okay. So they have a total of $100,000 in retirement accounts, in IRAs. Sure. $95,000 is pre-tax, 
$5,000 is after tax. Okay. Okay? Two totally separate accounts. That $95,000 was an old 401k that I rolled over into an IRA. Sure. And then I hear you on the radio in the podcast saying, hey, backdoor Roth IRA, that sounds pretty good. I'm going to do that. I'm going to put a $5,000 non-deductible IRA contribution into a separate IRA at Fidelity. Sure. And I'm going to convert it. Well, the problem is, is the IRS says, no, Alan, you don't have only 5000 You have 100000 5000 into 100000 is 5%. Correct. So if I did a conversion of that $5,000, only 5% of that conversion would be tax-free. Yeah, and that's 250 bucks. And so the aggregation rule means that all your IRAs get added together as if they were one account. And the pro rata rule is just that math. How much is pre-tax versus after tax? You do the calculation. That's going to determine how much is taxable and how much is tax-free. Look at that. Back to our Roth IRA um, in less than two seconds. want to thank our lovely producer, Andy Last, their Big Al Clopine. I'm Joe Anderson. Happy New Year. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Show us called Your Money Walk. Special thanks to our guest today, Marcus Garrett. Find links to his book, Debt Free or Die Trying, and his podcast, Paychecks and Balances, in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. If you enjoyed this episode or if you learned something from it, do us a favor and make a New Year's resolution to share it. You know, write it on your vision board. Subscribe to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast on your computer or your favorite smartphone app like Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And make sure to check out our ratings and reviews on iTunes as well. Email your money questions to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, just visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. I am not resolving to get a vision board. I might write stuff down and make a whole lot of lists, though. See you next week, friends.